Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. Personal development coach Tony Robbins says that the two human needs that bring us the most joy are contribution and growth. If you'd like to grow in your purpose with us and have something you could contribute to people of purpose, I am welcoming volunteers. If you have a skill, an idea, or a resource to bring to the project, please, please let me know. Send me an email at peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com or a direct message through our Facebook or Instagram pages at People of Purpose Podcast, and we'll get in touch. As I continually move into a greater pursuit of my purpose, teaching underserved students in San Francisco and pursuing a master's degree in education, I can use all the help I can get. If you're good with social media, audio editing, outreach communications, videography, or more, please tell me. And if you know and would like to suggest a person of purpose, please do. Finally, as we grow, I'm looking for your ideas for upcoming products and services that we could incorporate alongside the podcast to help people experience a greater sense of purpose. Please don't be shy. Let me know. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that personalizes your path of purpose? The POP newsletter, because people of purpose, is a very short email where I share with you the most interesting things I've recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life each week to more personally and purposefully pursue my purpose. It will include a short update on how my podcast is helping me grow into my purpose. A quote that's been on my mind from a purposeful resource such as a podcast, book, video, or mentor. As well as a nugget of advice from my experience on how to better align and optimize your life for your purpose. And finally, I'll try to share inspiration with you on how one of our listeners is benefiting from people of purpose. So please take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com. You don't even need to write a message, just include in the subject header, People of Purpose Newsletter, and you'll receive the very next one. The human mind is, is like, oh my God, um, I don't know, a golf cart engine and what we expect is a spaceship. I find this extremely uncomfortable, but we have to do it anyway. I mean, we feel that we have to do it anyway because my life is incredibly better now that, that I've actually started doing what I what I value. Oh yeah, like it was in black and white and now my life's in color. The way that we have found that is best to look for people and communities that are going to alter our worldview in a beneficial way is I look for people and communities who are saying something that I find offensive. So when you meet somebody who's not operating off of a template, it is for us so fascinating. And it's after those encounters where we're most likely to really change our views about something. Exactly. Malcolm and Simone Collins are co-authors of the book, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, 
a guide to creating your own answers to life's biggest questions. Their book is a ruthlessly pragmatic guide to creating your own answers to life's biggest questions. Each of this book's four chapters covers one of the most important questions a person must ask themselves. And rather than give you answers to these questions, this guide provides a framework that helps you develop your own answers while equipping you with the neuroscientific tools necessary to transform yourself into whomever you choose to be. The book was created as the work of a nonprofit institution dedicated to helping people think through the big questions in life without leading them to a specific answer. All proceeds from the sale of the book go to the nonprofit and not the authors. Originally a neuroscientist focused on brain-computer interface and the evolution of human cognition, Malcolm Collins felt he could learn more about the way humans interact with the world and each other by pursuing an MBA at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. There he met Simone, his wife and co-author, who at the time was the director of marketing at HubPages.com, managing a team of 20,000 freelancers. Together they co-founded the art commission marketplace ArtKoji.com, after which Malcolm became director of strategy at South Korea's most desired source of early stage VC capital, and Simone earned her graduate degree from Cambridge while working in VC. After which, Malcolm became the director of strategy at South Korea's most desired source of early stage VC capital, while Simone earned her graduate degree from Cambridge while working in VC. The couple now runs a number of travel companies, splitting their time between North American headquarters in Miami and South American offices in Lima, Peru. This conversation was quite a whirlwind of intellectual intensity. This couple really brings a lot of energy to their very thoughtful answers. They live hyper-intentionally to continually question the purpose of their life, and it was fun to break down and challenge the ways in which they've done that. We talked about several topics that have yet to be discussed in the podcast, including the function of relationships, how to question truths you've held, and how to optimize your life to fulfill your purpose. We throw around some philosophical terms in the interview, and I'd like to define one right now. That word is heuristic. And I'm doing so so that you can better understand one of the core aspects of Malcolm and Simone's philosophy. So a heuristic technique is often called simply a heuristic. It's an approach to problem solving, learning, or discovery that employs a practical method not guaranteed to be optimal or perfect, but sufficient for the immediate goals. Sometimes in this interview, I think I sound a little bit sleepy. And it's quite the contrast from Malcolm and Simone. We had this interview over Skype at midnight for me in Thailand and morning for them in America. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this hyper-rational, fast-paced conversation with these two people of purpose, Malcolm and Simone Collins. I met Malcolm in March. Uh, we're coming up on our fifth, the sixth anniversary. Um, and he was my 17th first date and he was totally different, completely different. Um, we basically, he, he sat down across from me at dinner um, that first night we met and he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really looking to date right now. I'm looking for a wife. Um, and 
I'm, I'm going to find her this fall at Stanford. I've basically given up finding any qualified candidates now. Well, because it was a large pre-qualified lead pool in the Stanford Business School. You know, they'd selected women already. They'd already done the screening process for me in terms of, you know, effectiveness, et cetera. Um, and so I could just use that instead of, you know, dating random women in the San Francisco, San Jose area. Which he'd basically been doing nonstop for the previous year. Well, because so. I'd been looking for about four years for a wife. So I, I, at that point, I was trying to do at least five dates a week and at least 50% of my time dedicated to the search. He called it his high throughput screening method, whereby he would date as many girls as possible, maybe like five or eight days a week, or sorry, eight dates a week. And it was a method used for finding antibodies, which I think is a very similar sort of a process. But it was on, when we first sort of met, one of the first conversations we had was about purpose. Yeah. And and where we want to go in life. So and yeah, I guess I'd like to get into that. Like, how did you first know that the purpose of your lives was going to become a meaningful lifelong study that like was at the forefront of what you do now? Yeah, well, so... I guess a lot of it actually got kicked off by the process of our ultimately getting married. So long story short, Malcolm made it clear he was going to find his wife at Stanford, which I thought was great because it meant that I could date him, fall in love with him, and then break up with him and have my heart broken and have my whole goal out of the way. Um, but then during the dating process, he started asking me those questions, you know, well, you know, what do you want to do with your life and, and, and what matters to you and, and why do you do what you do? And that was actually the first time anyone had seriously asked me those questions without immediately giving me an answer, like to save the earth or to be happy. Or like when you try to give me generic answers, like, you know, I want to improve the quality of life for other people. Yeah, I want to make the world a better place. And it's like, well, so then specifically how? Specifically, how do you judge the quality of life for another person? And how can you sort of tweak this aggregate happiness level? Because it's not... A, a simplistic concept. So suppose you had like one one thing we talk about in the in the book we wrote is like suppose you had these pods, right? And these pods could maximize whatever slurry of emotions that you think is the maximum possible slurry for a human to experience. And you could push a button and force every human in the world into one of these pods. Would you push the button? Um, and you know, a lot of people who say they want to maximize happiness for other people are like, no, I wouldn't. And it's, well, why? Well, because then I wouldn't be allowing them freedom. And so it's okay, well, freedom is better than happiness. So at what level of freedom, you know, does happiness become important? Suppose, you know, another experiment, you could push a button um, and, and euthanize the population of a poor country that, you know, will take at least more than a few more generations to, to you know, exit extreme poverty. And, and for a fact, you know, this will increase the aggregate happiness of the world even if it slightly decreases the aggregate happiness in this country, would you do it? A lot of people, you know, they say no. Um, and so the question is, well, define exactly what you're trying to maximize for the world. Define exactly what you want for the world and why. And yeah, really fascinating. I love that question. And I hated it. Oh, my God. When Malcolm first asked me these questions, I, I can't describe the the sort of hatred and umbrage that I took to being asked that. Um, and to and to actually think about it. But what really, really flipped me completely sideways in life was that when I started asking myself these questions, like, what do I value? What do I actually care about? All of the things that I'd been optimizing for in life up to that point were completely things I didn't value. So I was living basically what you'd consider a perfect life. I traveled around the world with the extra money I had from my Silicon Valley startup job, uh, you know, China, Europe, everywhere. Um, 
I, I had everything I wanted. I had friends. I hosted parties. What kind I, of things? What kind of things were you doing on your travels? Were they purposeful travels? Yeah, no, I mean, I would usually travel solo because that's how I'd like to experience a country. I'd meet new people, explore. I'd like really get out there, you know, not just go to like, I don't know, Shanghai or, or Beijing in China, but go to like Changsha and then take a bus three hours out to Zhangjiajie National Forest Park and then get lost in the forest and have to be rescued by people. Like whatever, you know, like really get out there and take photos. I was a photographer. I was a writer. I mean, like I really went into it and I write about my travels and then publish those articles online. I, I still make money from the ad revenue. Like I was doing well, right? But it turns out that when I actually ask myself, like, what do I enjoy doing and what matters to me? I, I personally hate travel. I personally don't enjoy it. Um, and I also, beyond that, don't even personally care that much about happiness. Um, and so my life was optimized around being this like world traveling, you know, published person who, and, and also someone who optimizes for happiness. And when that's why I had all these friends and I hosted all these parties and I did all these goofy little events. And I ultimately like don't value that. And, and it's weird that I was basically living a life that was a lie that by all means would seem like a total success. Um, and, and so then once I asked those questions and Malcolm helped me realize that I completely changed. Like I changed the way I spoke, the way I moved, the way I dressed. That's when she started looking at all these studies, looking at all these pictures, trying to optimize everything, you know? And, and I think that, uh, this, so when we're talking about sort of the travel situation, it's like, I, any specific moment on the travel or any day, did you really experience that much happiness? Did you really learn that much that you couldn't have learned from a dedicated study of the region through some other mechanism, through some more efficient mechanism? And it seems that if I look at her, like when I met her, what she was optimizing for, and I think this is what many people optimize for, they feel like they're given sort of templates of things you can optimize for a society. Sort Happiness, of, saving the world, helping others. Yeah, sort of these stereotypical archetypes, right? Yeah. You know, of the the hotshot millennial blogger, YouTuber, who's, you know, director of marketing at her company and who runs a successful YouTube channel and who, you know, travels around the world. And this is very much an archetype of a type of success and a type of person that our society gives us. Um, and she had never really asked herself, yeah, but specifically, why do I want those things? And when she gave a generic answer, like make the world a better place or make someone happier, uh, it was just because nobody really challenged her on that answer. Well, and it's, it's more it's more like people also present that as the correct answer always. Like if you if you pick up most self-help books now, they already assume that you want to be happy. Yeah. Or that you want to be, you know, like a productive member or help other people. And and so we sort of don't even come to think that that's. A question, question that we should be asking. Yeah. When, when you were the, when you were traveling, were you prompting conversations about these topics? You seem like you don't live by cliches at all. Like you, like you, the way you travel is going and getting lost. Like the cliche of that type of traveler is to put yourself in these tough environments to go live with the locals. To yeah, go. and so it's all about like you know, okay, so like I you know went out there and I was living with these people and it really opened my eyes and like now I have this enlightened i mean people in oh, you come back and you say all that yeah and, and so then, you, you know, sort of believe it yeah well and then you use it sort of to reinforce this self-identity of i am better than you even though you know you you, you have this whole equanimity equanim yeah, yeah yeah even though you do the part of your self-identity is that you don't yeah you know that. you're so humble but you're actually really better than everyone else because you've seen the rest of the world a, a different culture to change your view in some yeah, way how better they live it's a lot of it i, I realized upon further self-reflection was that it was about 
reinforcing a certain element of myself. And, and much as a surprise as it was, because everyone says, you know, you travel to expand your understanding of the world, your consciousness. What I realized, at least I was doing with my travel, was further entrenching not only into an, a, a, just a self-identity. So I was doing it to, to reinforce this identity that I felt I needed to have. It was, it was not just that, but that this was an identity I, like, as a genuine person, when I actually dug deep, it wasn't even me. You know, it wasn't, it was just something that had been foisted upon me, which is really, and either, like, this is really what drove me. Uh, I think Malcolm has his own reasons to make our purpose in life and, and what we think really important that we need to do with our existence is to help people ask these questions of themselves because I was, I was basically living a lie and I didn't realize it. And, and there was a lot of my life that, that, I mean, you know, while I had these elements of success, I also was was crippled by obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, um, occasional depression. And I think a lot of the these like underlying issues or, or problems that people have with their lives may result from them not having a genuine sense of purpose, for not having something they genuinely believe that they should fight for. Uh, yeah, and, I, and to add to that, I mean, it's not just a sense of purpose, it's a sense of self. Yeah. Specifically, that you get to choose the archetype that you're optimizing for. I mean, all humans naturally optimize for an archetype. It's it's sort of part of the way our brains work. Well, and I think all humans naturally have a base proclivity towards something that's going to contribute towards whatever they think their purpose is going to be. Some people, I think, are just genetically more likely to really want personal happiness, or they just get more uh, personal fulfillment out of seeing other people happy. Like, we're all going to tend a certain way the problem is that people aren't allowed to tend to their own ways right now. They aren't allowed to find for themselves what truly deeply they, they want or what, what makes them work right. Hey, you know, the whole fun thing is, is we're talking all of this about travel. We own a large a, a chain of travel companies. Um, one of the largest in the southern United States right now. Uh, we've got, you know, multiple offices in Miami, multiple offices in Peru. We live half our time in Peru. So, uh, and the last place we lived is I was living in Korea for a year and you were living in the UK. So it's not like, you know, we're sedentary now. It's just, we don't try to, um, yeah, we travel more than ever, but it's not to reinforce a certain identity. It's to pursue our purpose, um, which is different, but it is kind of ironic. Um, and it's, it's very interesting to see the experience of our clients, which are all fantastic people traveling for business. We have a lot of celebrity clients that are traveling to perform or to do a, like a, go to a film set, um, or just like general leisure travelers, who we also serve a lot, who are traveling for a wide variety of different reasons. And, you know, it's it's not it's not all about reinforcing a self-image. A lot of it's about seeing certain people or finishing a project. And it is interesting what you can learn about people through their travel patterns, but that's sort of a separate issue. <laughs> yeah. So can we talk about Malcolm's, uh, Malcolm's upbringing into purpose? Like, it seems like yeah. he, he transitioned or he was an important step in your journey. How was he so fixed in like what his purpose was? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it, it's, the, the thing is, is like I can go into all these crazy stories, you know, living in all sorts of places around the world and everything like that and trying to, to find it. But the, the real thing was, the real moment when I had to find a purpose was so like simple. It was a test. And it was a test in middle school. And I thought to myself, well, do I study for this test to get a better grade? Or do I go play video games right now because I really want to play video games? Um, and that that was it. That was the question. 
<laughs> and I was like, and then, but the question didn't leave me. I, I, I didn't do either. I just became obsessed with it. Like, okay, why am I doing anything? Like, why do I do this over this? Like, if I play video games, okay, well, I'll feel happy now. If I take the test, I might be able to maximize aggregate happiness over the whole of my life. But am I really my future self? I probably psych psychologically have more in common with my friends right now than I'll have with myself at 30 or 40. Oh, definitely. And so, you know, why am I trying to reward this future person that's not even me? And, <laughs> and you have a Theseus ship argument, right? Um, and then, are, are you familiar with that? Is that worth... What was the name of that argument again? Theseus' ship. So Theseus' ship goes like this. So Theseus, uh, Greek guy, traveling the oceans, right? Okay. And his ship... The boards rot on the ship, right? Which means that they constantly have to replace, replace the boards all the running boards. New boards. So five years later, he comes back. All of the boards on the ship are new boards. What if a... No, a no, no, no. The board. first you say, okay, um, so that means that this is a... Is this the same ship or is it not the same ship? Most people would say, yeah, it's the same ship. But okay, the exact same thing happens. He's pulling up the rotting boards... But then somebody in a boat behind him is picking up all the rotting boards and rebuilds an exact replica of the ship with the same boards that used to be that ship. Now, which is the real Theseus ship? Um, and that's sort of the a question that's used a lot when we're talking about, like, who am I really and who am I trying to reward with my future happiness? Because you have to think about that. I mean, sort of the, the person that you are today will be dead within a couple of weeks. I mean, you're going to, I mean, both physically, you're going to not totally change, but like, Every single day, we're going through Theseus' ship, right? Like, we're getting new ideas, we're just changing our personality and who we are. We are aging, our, our you know, skin is sloughing off. and So why may, so this was sort of a first question for me, is why make sacrifices now to make myself in the future happier? And then I started thinking about, like, why do I even care about my happiness? Right. Uh, I mean, what, what I think happiness, you know, like, when I think about my thoughts about what happiness is, well, it's something we evolved to feel, to push us towards certain passive actions so that our ancestors had more babies. And I was like, well, then what, why does that matter to me? Like, what? I, I, I understand why I'm having this impulse, but there's all sorts of impulses I have that I don't act on because, you know, of some societal construct around not acting on them. Right. So why do I value this impulse? So why did you not just choose all-out nihilism? Because I don't believe that either. I mean, I think to choose all-out nihilism. And the book that we wrote, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, it, it doesn't actually push you towards any answer. So we choose nihilism as a viable path. We choose happiness as a viable path. We choose everything as a viable path. One person complained after reading it. They go, you just presented a bunch of paths and then argued why all of them are probably wrong. Um, and we're like, well, that's the point. Because we're tr we tried to write a book that didn't guide someone towards any path, but just at least forced them to think about the path they were on. So with nihilism, my thoughts were, this is just my personal journey. Um, if there is a chance, even a small chance, that something in the world has intrinsic value, then I, I have to chase that thing, even if that thing is just searching for something of intrinsic value instead of nihilism, because in a nihilistic universe, there's no specific reason to do anything um, uh, uh, if there is a chance that something does have real purpose. Now, in a nihilistic universe that is a certain nihilistic universe, yes, you will build heuristics to optimize things you choose to optimize in your life. So suppose even if I chose a nihilistic universe belief... Um, uh, well, you're still stuck as a human. You're still stuck as a human, and you're still choosing to, to optimize something 
thing in your decision so making here is to, to kill when yourself. you choose who to vote for or whatever, right? You, there's still some back, background heuristic you're using. Um, so it's still worth thinking about. Yeah, don't you have to? Don't you have to like at least uh, put some some ground in mental constructs of your own? Like you have to trust something as reliable as a reliable focal point to see the world through, don't you? You do. And and another thing that we write about in the Pragmatist Guide to Life is standards of evidence. Even start deciding what is it that I believe and value and what matters to me is is okay. Well, what am I going to use as that's my basis for reality because is it you know is it going to be the bible is it going to be a series of scientific studies or scientific consensus or my personal experience and you have to first decide what are you going to trust there you know what my parents say i should do like whatever um and then from there you can begin to build but you're right you have to have some sort of basis but you know we're not in a position to tell people what that basis should be in the end it's going to have to be a judgment call so let's go into your personal path then you've made the judgment call what what are your combined purposes in what you do right now? What is your your single purpose? Basically, to help people think intentionally for themselves about what they want to do with their lives, what their purpose will be, and then how to help them. So it sounds a little reductive when you say it that way. There's actually like a logical framework behind this. Go for it. Um, okay, so I haven't tried to explain it in words before, so it's a little difficult. Like, and it actually requires a lot of stuff sort of written in different parts of the book to, 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 to piece together. But essentially, when I look at what I believe I am, I am my, my consciousness, uh, which is the, the interacting stream of patterns, right? It's not necessarily the neurons or anything like that. It's the patterns that the neurons make that through some emergent property causes me to perceive the world in a certain way. So... If I am my consciousness, what is the purpose of that consciousness? Now, you could say the purpose of that consciousness is to reproduce, um, and some people might find purpose in that, but um, uh, when we were talking more about this, uh, we said, well, why did consciousness evolve? Like, what, what is consciousness from an evolutionary perspective or sentience, and why is it, in, you know, significant? And it's significant much in the same way that the first... Um, uh, a sex organ, you know, uh, uh, microsomal uh, early life was significant. Um, when you when you get, had the sexes first develop, it was important because it allowed change to happen faster, and it allowed sort of I don't know you call them proto ideas, like ways of being to be tested faster by allowing for more variation. Our consciousness allows the same thing to happen, but for ideas, um, and so consciousness first evolved. Uh, and its sort of purpose in evolution was to test ideas and to test ideas against other consciousnesses, find the best ideas, and then help spread those ideas. So more simply put, our minds and the fact that we have this sort of complex consciousness that is associated with them, per our theory, is an evolution accelerator, which gives humans a leg up over many other species. But that's what it's designed to be. But anyway, over time, because... This, this accelerator exists in, in such large quantities now and not in these smaller environments that it was sort of designed to operate in. Um, memes have sort of begun to corrupt them and they've begun to move towards just wanting to see themselves as some base identity 
um, and not really think through what they believe about things because there's so many prepackaged beliefs available to us and prepackaged ways of, of, of thinking. And many of these beliefs are counterculture beliefs. You know, it's a belief that I'm somebody who questions everything and go to Burning Man and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's still very much prepackaged belief where there are things you're not allowed to question. Um, you know, if you have that belief, you're not allowed to question, well, is equality important? Like, why specifically do I believe that equality has value? And we just wanted to... Uh, so, so our sort of thing is to get people to question all of these core things. Um, well, in, in, in the sense that if I am my consciousness and the purpose of my consciousness is to come up with new ideas and let the best ideas win. You're talking circularly now. Well, I, I, I don't know if I understood from what you were saying what our, our gist Okay, so. Um, but if, if I'm my consciousness and we need to let the best ideas win, it's a problem that right now a lot of people are not thinking critically about that genuinely. And instead of just assuming personalities that say, yes, I do think critically without actually doing so. So we're just trying because to Because actually... I question X or Y cliche thing. Yeah. So just actually, actually think and act purposefully. But um, to, on top of all that, I'm, I'm actually not that sure that we're right about this. You know, it's, it's our best guess right now. And it will probably change and evolve over time. Exactly. Yeah, so some assumptions I'm hearing from you is that I am consciousness. That's an assumption you're making. And then also the idea exactly. that best ideas, that is a very subjective term. And also why would people, why would people's ideas be the paramount thing? Like what if it's just about experiencing love or experiencing solitude and peace and beauty, like less concrete ideas? Well, I mean, love is a pretty concrete thing. We can even sort of manufacture love. There's the... Um, what, what study is that? I want to say acid. It starts with an A. Anyway, because this guy did this series of studies where he tried to force people to um, fall, in love. fall in love. And he found that you could. Like, random participants in the study ended up getting married. Um, you know, it, the ability to create love through simple questionnaires and causing people to do simple things is, is really easy. If you look at um, statistics from, uh, you know, happiness levels within... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? for the, the, the parent chosen marriage system. Oh, arranged marriages. Arranged marriages versus. <laughs> I love um, you have this massive vocabulary and then you forget arranged marriages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forget, yeah. Uh, versus, you know, more Western style marriages. Um, the statistics show, um, you know, a similar happiness level actually within both marriage pools if i remember but, but they yeah. show much lower divorce rates in the other category so these unhappy marriages so basically you're more likely to be in a loving happy marriage if you're in an arranged marriage than if you're not in an arranged marriage and to me that does show that love is, is kind of a but tanner i think what you you've pointed out here and what's really interesting a mixture of, of both base values and standards of evidence so what you're seeing in, in malcolm and me is that what we're looking at is is as much as we can like studies and science and the biology of humans um, and, and we're valuing like okay we're, we're valuing perceived purpose like what is the biological purpose of x or y or z and what you, you're looking at is okay what if it's about feeling at peace feeling connectedness you know getting to some sort of different like getting beyond thought like even like you guys are still in a very thinking rationality based assumption system whereas like you know, Buddhism wants to transcend that and just accept every moment and not try to alter it or change it or find some optimal state. Right, and that, that, that is associated with a very different set of, of standards of evidence and, and values as well. You know, the value not being how can I serve my purpose and 
and you know you know what is the purpose and how do we do this instead it's you know like how do i get beyond my you know this human thing that i'm stuck in this meat popsicle and 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 transcend um which is sort of that that goal of buddhism right to get even just beyond humanity like mm-hmm. to 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 break the cycle and we've we've not chosen to like those values are not what we as people like gravitate towards but we understand you're silicon valley people you have to think that uh that technology and being programmable and finding like statistical analyses like that i mean that's hard evidence that you 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 don't have to live by a faith-based system or a subjective analysis system like there's objective hard facts that you know that come away with some level of truth this is just a system that we have chosen to live by, and there's other systems. And in our book, we try to discuss all of the various systems that somebody can work off of. Right. And 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 explore why. I mean, in our we're very critical of our own system in our book. I'll tell well, you that. I mean, I mean, like what we what we want to advocate for boils down to I don't care what what answer you get or how you get there, but I do care that you show your work. Yeah, ah, that's funny. cool. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I, I, I do find the whole Buddhism angle very interesting. This is something, well, one of the categories that we talk about is how many people are taking sort of old religious traditions and then believing aspects of the tradition while throwing out other aspects that were traditions were sort of conceived. Which, and I'm, I'm totally guilty of this, right? I was raised um, by... My my parents called she themselves Buddhist. They called themselves born again Buddhists. I I went to temple as a kid, a Buddhist temple. I went to Dharma school, and I also like it was sort of a mixture of like Buddhism and Shinto because I spent a lot of time traveling in Japan, and I was born in Japan. And my middle name was Haruko and everything. So you know, I was like worshiping at Shinto shrines and and growing up very very Buddhist and. I, I, I see what Malcolm's talking about. Western Buddhism, for example, just completely ignores the cycle of suffering, almost, which is one of the four pillars. Like, you can't just say life isn't suffering. I'm a Buddhist, but I don't think life is suffering. That's like the core of the original Buddhist philosophy. You can say that I, I, I have adopted some philosophies from Buddhist tradition, and I chose these specific philosophies as the true philosophies of the Buddhist tradition because of X heuristic I'm using. But yeah, again, it's about showing your work and being being thoughtful about it and understanding why you've come to the conclusions that you've come to. So has there been a time where you really did feel like you believed something and then your whole world was turned upside down and you, you didn't believe that at all anymore? Or you realized that maybe the opposite was true? Yeah, actually, all, all, uh, that happens frequently because one thing that Simone and I always try to focus on is whenever we see some evidence that something that we believe deeply is wrong, we're like, Okay, because the first natural thing to do is to always say, no, fake, you know, ignore it. <laughs> fake news. Fake news, ignore it. Um, because there's evidence that what I believe is wrong. And here's, and the first thing you think is, here's why this study is probably wrong, or they probably didn't have enough participants or whatever, and then you just leave. And it's those things where, where um, we try to, and, and recently we've tried a lot more, to really focus on and be like, wait a second, is this evidence that my worldview is wrong? Um, and I would say that's happened sort of two times recently. One was about um, news and our ability to sort of trust it about things. Given the social circles that we associate with, I was very much in the position that, you know, stuff that's written in the mainstream news sources, New York Times and stuff like that, 
is really middle road and not hyper biased and not gonna, you know, intentionally attempt to mislead me. Um, and I have since completely changed my worldview on that. And it really was quite shocking to me to be like, that there, there is not a source of news right now that I currently trust. And I just sort of had to glom together what's really happening by looking at different extremist things and then use principles like, okay, they're reporting this and this goes against the message they would want me to believe. So that means it's probably true. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, if anything, every month I get more and more aware of the extent to which my mind and reasoning is flawed. I mean, we, on a regular basis, come to realize that we've been been laboring under a false assumption for months and maybe something really important. I mean, it's not just about philosophical stuff. It's about like business stuff. Like um, last, uh, last week, we had this big panic about this legal deadline that we were so sure existed that we'd taken all this extra action. Just, oh, wait, no, it, it was like twice as long. We got the date totally wrong. So we, we make mistakes like this all the time. The human mind is, is like, Oh my God! Um, I don't know a golf cart engine, and what we expect is a spaceship. Uh, yeah. Well, I would I would say that your big one. I don't know if you remember your big thing where you changed your mind really huge on something. It happens a lot. Was the um, one about uh, chastity in women? Oh, my and God. the neurological effects. Right. Yeah. So we we came across some really interesting research um, that that suggests that women who've had quite a few partners experience, uh, the study found that they experience lower levels of oxytocin when intimate with their their current partners than women who've only had like one or two or, or no other partners, which suggests that, and this makes sense. I mean, like, I don't want to get into like our, like the evolutionary reasoning behind it that makes us think it's, it's a logical thing for humans to evolve. But it suggests then that like this whole idea. And I mean, I, I was raised by parents who constantly said, go out, experiment, like sleep around, try, you know. Um, and I think most women are encouraged to basically like, you know, have as many partners as, as they can or as they want. Um, but it looks like that could actually cause their future long-term committed relationships to be less satisfying, at least on a, on a chemical level, at least with regard to oxytocin. Um, Which and, is and, a chemical that causes experience and, of love. And, and reported levels of satisfaction. So, I mean, that, that really... That was a, and that was a big world changer for me because I've always been very, you know, sex positive and everything like that and, and that people should just do what they want and stuff. And, and I, stuff like this shakes, you know, our, really our perception of how what we say to our children, you know, like... It's, it's interesting, and, and you know, now we're like, God, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say right now. I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I still haven't really settled down well, after that new piece of information. I don't know what the correct advice we will, is. Now. We will need more information, you know, and, and that's, more studies. And so, yeah, for I mean, us. for us, yeah, for us, but that for other means, people, it might be personal experimentation. But personal experimentation sort of is impossible to test this hypothesis. Yeah, with. I mean, like, yeah, you can't. Well, but then again, we're using again scientific reasoning. And Why is it that you guys have the opinion that every person should come to their own understanding of what their purpose is? But all of your evidence you're using are these like big conglomerate studies of thousands of people looking at one specific hormone. Like, what about just like an individual case study? Why don't you you just take more individual testimonies? Because we know the danger of selection bias could give us very incorrect 
results. Yeah. Um, and, we, and this happens, I mean, again, we, like, we constantly- Even when it comes to these huge studies, I want to throw out things that don't confirm to my worldview, and I want to accept things that do confirm to my worldview. And I know if I'm picking case studies, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That said, a lot of our beliefs are based around case studies, you know, are based around personal it may, experience. It may, other- for example, start with a case study which we then either try to find contrary or supporting evidence using studies. But, but we should say, you know, in our book as well, we talk about all these different standards of evidence and we say that all of them are flawed to a large extent. I mean, when we talk about scientific studies, we're not, you, you know, there's, there's different ways this can even be broke down. Is it the scientific consensus you agree with? Or is it like individual studies that you think were well conducted? Or is it, you know, and, and when it comes to personal experiences, there's very different ways you can judge the truth of a personal experience. You know, um, there is things that you physically experience, like materialistically experience about the world. And then there's things that emotionally seem like they might be right. And those are two different ways of judging a personal experience. One of the uh, sort of thought experiments we use in the book around this is, okay, either you believe in ghosts or you don't believe in ghosts. But whichever position you have right now, what evidence would you need to see to change your view of that? So, for example, if you saw a ghost, would you be more likely to think that's a real ghost or think I'm going crazy? Or if the New York Times published something saying ghosts everywhere, would you think, okay, this source of authority said ghosts are everywhere. I believe it or I don't believe it. Like what source of evidence is required to change your view of something? And this is something that we do all the time. Whenever we deeply believe something, we ask ourselves what would I need to see to change my belief in this? And then we look for it, which is really important because I think most people, you know, no, nobody wants to find something that disconfirms a belief. And that's one reason why when Malcolm first made me start questioning all these things, I like literally hated him for a while because it's so uncomfortable to to put yourself out on that ledge. It's like standing at the edge of a cliff with nowhere to go. Uh, but but down and and it's really scary to change your worldview. I, I I genuinely hate the feeling. Like I find this extremely uncomfortable. But we have to do it anyway. I mean, we feel that we have to do it anyway because my life is incredibly better now that that I've actually started doing what I and what I value. What, what metrics are you using to say your life is incredibly better? So, a lot of it's subjective stuff. Like, am I am I happier? Yes, I am happier. Do I have fewer of the mental problems that I had before? And or am I exhibiting lesser symptoms? Yes, I am. Is my health better? Yes, it is. And also, am I materially making more accomplishments that I personally value? Like, am I making more in my career? I mean, like, I as a kid had all these different goal documents and stuff, and am I actually achieving those? And yeah. but the way you described it to me. If I remember, is it's like there there wasn't a fire there before, and there's a fire there now. It's like your life was sort of on autopilot to some extent. Oh yeah, like it was in black and white, and now my life's in color. Like and everything feels different. It's not like before was bad, and I didn't know what I was missing. It's it's really hard. It's like before was was great. Everything was good. It wasn't that before wasn't happy. Um, it's not like a black and white video is intrinsically worse than a colored video, but if someone had never seen color, it would be difficult to describe what having a sense of true, like, fire purpose feels like in life. And I think that, you know, when people talk about finding Jesus or whatever, this is the moment they're talking about. The moment when a fire of purpose gets lit in them, and they really can't describe it in any other way than, well, I found 
Jesus. When somebody goes and says, oh, yeah, I found Jesus. Yeah, I know this moment you're talking about. Yeah, it's like having a, a sense of strength and energy that that you never had before that makes it feel like you can do anything no matter how hard it is. Like you don't, it, it's, but it's, that's very hard to describe. And, and I, I would have probably, like if I, my previous self had been told like, well, you know, you don't know what it's like, but well, I have that. Of course I have that, I would say. Um, you have, I, I you have like no one grounding belief that's, that's never gonna shift. Like everything is constantly in flux. Well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I would say that I, I do have a very, the, the, the grounding, so here's the way I look at it, is everyone has a base proclivity, some element of them that sort of boils down what ultimately their purpose will be. And mine has always, always been, and it's just so clearly written on the wall, um, serving a purpose. I want to serve my purpose. If I'm a toaster, I want to toast all of the bread, all of the bread perfectly um like i just want and and that's that's something that drives me and always has driven me it's just that you know where i was lost was i was just serving purposes that i didn't truly deep down believe and now i am and we should really stress that we don't think even even our sort of base thing when you were asking us about that we only came up with that like two years ago we had completely different ones before that we figure it out as we go along but i think in the end like when it comes down to the values i don't think we figured out we're making value judgments which could be very different than other people's value judgments and that's sort of the core of our philosophy is that we want to create an organization that's the nonprofit we run and, and and the book that we did that is not about what we believe is true it's just about getting people to take ownership of what they believe is true. And some of the, the, because when we know, when I know what I believe is true, there's all sorts of things that are probably wrong about it and really difficult questions that, that I have trouble answering with it. Um, and I think that that's true for almost every core set of beliefs. And, and, what we- and there's no organization that you can go to or no person you can go to um, who's going to talk you through your own beliefs um, without trying to force you to come to a specific answer. It's not going to try to force you to say, well, scientific studies are better than your emotional state in terms of determining what's true. And what we crave is the value that we would gain as well from having people who make very different value judgments and have very different proclivities and styles from us who have you know, done their work, who have thought through it, share with us their perspectives and how they got there. Because now all we really have is people, like when we discuss our views with people who have very different philosophies, much to our chagrin, it's they're they're using templates. They're they're basically just conforming with what our society gave them, and they're not telling us how they got there in a way that helps us understand if we're wrong or right. Yeah, but we love harvesting these templates. I guess that's what she's saying. Not the templates, but the things behind the templates. So when you meet somebody who's not operating off of a template, it is for us so fascinating, and it's after those encounters where we're most likely to really change our views about something. Exactly. Wow, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can you can, can you maybe tell one specific example of that you've had recently where you've met somebody just totally on in their own zone? I would say it's probably like the men's right stuff for you. Oh my God, for sure. Um, yeah, I'm, my huge thing is like, do you know, like how familiar are you with the game or pickup artists or the red pill or like any of those online communities? <laughs> uh, not, no, I'm not familiar with the online communities, no. Okay, okay, well, um, I guess it started maybe 10 years ago, uh, someone published a book called The Game, which is sort of about, like, sexual strategy and, and dating women, 
um, which I, I think sort of gathered a lot of interest because men are trying to figure out, of course, you know, like, how do I date? How do I have sex? How do I find women? Um, and then part of this, this, this faction of people who are discussing sexual and dating strategy um, got a little bit more radical and ph philosophical. So not just talking about like sex and stuff, but just talking about the entire world and what it is these stoic philosophies. Very, yeah, that were very quite elaborate. Yeah. And, and very focused on, you know, self-improvement and, 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 building independence in life and it, it's called the red pill the, the concept being that you know you could swallow the blue pill or the red pill and if you swallow the red pill you have to swallow some very un inconvenient truths about what it means to be a man in modern society and and lies that you're being told about okay you know be nice to women be the nice guy give them whatever whatever they want always you know act a certain way and then you'll get sex which is a lie underlying philosophy that's interesting Exactly. So, so just to sort of, it's not that she conforms to all of their beliefs, but yeah. it's that she had never encountered a worldview like this. Yeah. So basically, what they do, and what I mean, it, 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 both both the red pill and pickup artists basically apply the principles of economics to dating. And I'd never seen the world of love and romance and dating discussed from a very academic, logical, stoic. Like, I mean, stoic is sort of. It, it boils it down too much. I mean, because, you know, Stoics suggest to people like, oh, these people who are like grinning and bearing it, you know, but no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's logical, it's level headed. And it's a look at how humans interact and how relationships are formed based on the genuine value that people bring to the table and not based on social traditions and feelings, which, which is an interesting view in it's, my it's, point. To clarify, it's not that you took away their worldview. No. It's that you had never encountered a worldview like that. And because you had never encountered it, and they show their work as to how they got to that world view, you were able to take things that you think that they had that were righter than what you already believed and incorporate them into your own worldview. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool. The, the idea of applying economics to romance, you know, like, I mean, so things like that where people have really yeah. just rethought everything. I mean, and there I, are other people that we've met um, who are, for example, entrepreneurs who are completely rethinking the way that companies are made, you know, instead of, instead of saying, okay, well, let's build the office, let's create the team. They're saying, okay, what are really the elements of a company? Okay. Well, basically I just need procedures and I need the right people. And what if I just find them in, in Turkey? What if I just find them in Chile? And then I hire them remotely and do all these other things, taking a totally different approach to something that people assume I think is always going to go a certain but, way. But to, to take it down to something that's more, more utility to the listener, the way that we have found that is best to look for people and communities that are going to alter our worldview in a beneficial way is I look for people and communities who are saying something that I find offensive because the offense emotion in our brain is the emotion that comes up when your worldview is being challenged. That's really what like offense is, is an emotion. It's, this is a threat to my worldview. And so if it's something that I find offensive, I want to ask them, okay, what's your logical framework behind this? And sometimes they don't have one. Sometimes it's just, well, it's obviously true. Or it's, it's this is because of this, which is just obviously true. But other times you'll find somebody who says something that you find offensive that has this m mountain of um, sort of a philosophical thought under that. And that's where we can find interesting things because that offensive flag is our brain saying, I don't want to engage with this. Get it away from me. There be gold and then there are hills. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this could be dangerous to me.
No, it's true. Yeah. So, so the, and we've conditioned ourselves to when we get offended, that's like a happy scenario. We get excited. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like a shark smelling. Because blood. then you get a fight, which feels fun, and you get to fight them you in your brain. You to, it's not that you get to fight. It's, it's that also that we know at this point that when we get offended, we're hopefully, maybe about to learn something incredibly valuable. Well, but, nor, but when most people, you know, the offended emotion tells you, oh, this person's worse than me and here's why, oh. which helps affirm your own self-identity. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you how do you how do you tell others to begin to look into themselves into in an objective, unbiased way, and to recognize like when you get um, irksome at somebody offending you, to realize that that's a learning opportunity. There's so many like biases and assumptions and ways cultural ways we're raised that 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 prevent us from those abilities. How do you even create the potentiality for someone to be able to to look at the world in a in the, in the way that you guys do? I think, well, what we're personally trying to do with the book we're writing and with the foundation we, we created is to create, I, I don't like this word, but create a safe space where people can just talk about it, talk it out. Without without us, you know, in this safe space, like it's sort of like therapy. So it actually didn't start with, it started with these therapy sessions we were running. Yeah, we thought we'd um, create, like, and this was probably way too much my influence, but I'm like, oh my gosh, what if we created a nail salon where you're getting like a hand massage and you're, you know, and you're relaxed and then you just start talking about philosophy. Um, and the person talking to you isn't allowed to prevent any su- suggestions or anything like that. They just ask why. Like, why do you believe this? Well, why do you believe that? Well, why do you, you know, similar to, to what you're doing. Um, and and we really liked that idea. I've, I've had that idea before, by yeah. the way, also. <laughs> I, just got a, I just got certified in Thai massage. I'm here in Thailand right now. And I took like a week-long immersive Thai massage course. And I was thinking all the time, like, this would be a great opportunity to really help someone uncover some of the, the deeper, you know, self-perceptions they have and... Yeah, like see a regular client. <laughs> yeah, no, that's we, brilliant. That's we actually brilliant. set that up, and we were doing it for a while. So we tried this with a lot of different people to try and find out what worked and what didn't work. And then we started writing a um, – to, like, make it at a larger scale, we started writing a, a sort of a guide to how to do this for someone, right? Like a step-by-step sort of a thing. And then it just got longer and longer and longer. And then we were like, screw it. Let's just make this – a book and so we changed it from the format of sort of a in session one talk about this in session two talk about this in session three talk about this you know if they answer this answer why uh into just like a a a book Uh, and that's how the book came to be then i find it interesting that that in the end like that's sort of something you've been thinking too that like okay if people get offended and freaked out the moment you ask them big questions about their lives and they shut down like what is it going to take? Like, do we have to massage people? Like, how do we get people relaxed and open enough to actually think about it? And it's interesting how closed people off or how closed people are. Well, I think you have to trust people with, with sharing your thoughts and your feelings. Like it's hard enough to even trust yourself to even admit it. And then once you do admit how you think about the world and, and feel about it, to share that with another human is very vulnerable for people. And for some reason we are all able to do that. And I'm kind of, that's what I want to get at is like, how do you even begin to unlock that potential in people to be able to be open to seeing the world in an unbiased sort of way? That's hard. I guess what we would say is read the guide. That, ah. No, no, um, uh, no or engage the friends. So what we're trying to do as a foundation is... I'm just talking like an everyday conversation. Like if like a listener to my podcast wants to talk to another person um, about their purpose, yeah. how do they even begin to, to start that dialogue in a, in a legitimate way without like all these you know platitudes? Yeah, I, I would say I, I we 
are still sort of testing that. I think that we need to, in some ways, change the fabric of the way society works right now. Um, and one of the projects that we're working on with the foundation right now is creating after-school programs. Um, and these programs are not going to focus on like the deep level stuff. It's just, we want to sort of, um, uh, uh, get people to think through how you change your mind at all. So for kids, what we'll do is we'll say, um, the, the sort of, uh, framework of the program right now is, okay, what's something you believe, you know, really deeply about like a political position you have really strongly, like gun control or something like that. And then you ask them, okay, what evidence do you need to change your position on this? Um, like, what would you need to see? What evidence would you need to find? What sort of sources would you trust that uh, would it cause you to say, huh, I guess I was wrong about this? Um, and it sort of goes through that evidence. And then we say, maybe that evidence is already out there. Have you looked, you know, in online sources? Have you searched news for, the, for this evidence? And just sort of running these, and you know, our goal really isn't to get them to change their mind, it's just to get them to build these heuristics, like changing your mind on something that you feel very strongly about is okay. And the only really dangerous thing is when you have one of these high level beliefs, like a political belief or something like that, that no amount of evidence could change your opinion on, then it's not really, it's, 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 that's what's toxic to society. Yet we are totally okay with that as a society right now. We are totally okay with engaging someone about this and they're just like, no amount of evidence would change my mind. And that's considered a chill answer. Well, I would say we also live in like an echo, echo chamber society and so people are looking to be validated rather than challenged. For me, I think a lot of this thinking started for me freshman year of high school when I joined the policy debate team. and you have to affirm something and then negate the same thing the next round sometimes. Or you even have to like look at more of a theoretical level of is there actual fairness and equality in this debate? Um, what, what assumptions of value are being made um, in terms of how we measure impact? And it, it just opened my mind into like, you know, there's ways to justify anything. Like there was even a team running a case about how we should be eating dead babies. And it's like, you can, anything's open. Uh, so, I guess what I'm kind of wondering is like, I felt a lot of cynicism after that, realizing that there's really nothing that you can believe in or put your hope in um, necessarily, because there's always the negative side to it that you notice. How have you guys stayed so positive and optimistic and engaged with, you know, with your work? That's interesting. I mean, what I what I came away from debate societies feeling frustrated about was actually that so many of the debates just turned into to issues of semantics. But I think that's ultimately what a lot of it comes down to in the end anyways. How do we want to define things? Oh, here's what I would take away from that, especially what he said, is that um, there are frameworks out there. Like, like that's what we're trying to create is a framework that you can build for yourself. So like we sort of present a basic structure for a framework for how after you've argued both sides of a debate, which side you believe, but we left every section of this framework hollow for you to build yourself. Like, here is how I choose the evidence that is more important to me. Here is how I choose what I'm trying to optimize for, but we don't tell you what to optimize for or what form of evidence is the best form of evidence. We just sort of do an analysis of all the different ways that you can interact with that. And what we're hoping, and, and because it's worked for us, is by using this framework, you know, I can hear two sides of a, at least a high level debate like that, 
and come away being like, okay, based on this heuristic and this heuristic and this heuristic, I know which answer I'm going to accept is likely true. Yeah, we don't we don't feel any ambivalence because we've gone to the very core of where our values lie. So everything just slots into place perfectly, sorts like coins in a coin machine. Really? You've so never I, felt just locked in indecision where you, you can't really choose a side because you see the merits of both? No, and, and that's because we've gone to those super, super core deep values. And I, I think you know. I think you're coming across this area in here. That's not really what it is. It's just we have a, we have a framework that's a systematized you know, you framework. You guys can be separate on your opinion sometimes. Like in this case, she might have a different one than you. No, no. And this systematized framework is useful in, in, in coming to answers. For sure. Um, and that's why we feel, but we don't always, to say, oh, we don't question things. Like I was talking about, sometimes we'll get some piece of evidence that um, is, is, is a category of evidence that we strongly value. But then that evidence that we just got messes with a bunch of what we call ideologies, which are sort of hypotheses about how the world works, and doesn't really jive with them. Like the one we were talking about how, um, you know, the, the more sexual partner the female has, the lower the cortisol. So to, when we got that piece of evidence, we're like, this doesn't slot in with anything I've been saying my whole life, anything I believe, or any of the other evidence I've seen, yeah. but it appears fairly robust. And because we have this thing right here and this worldview right here, and they don't really meld easily, I can say that my thoughts on that subject are not shaken out yet. Yeah, but, 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 but that we, doesn't cause, for me at least, a sense of discomfort or indecision or unhappiness. It's just, oh, jury's out on that one i don't know and i'm okay it's okay to not i mean when you for just, me it's okay to well, not i know how that. smart you know she creates her google alerts for certain scientific studies when she's in a state like this where she's like okay i don't know what i believe about right, this right now i'm gonna wait on more studies to come out and sort of crystallize my beliefs over time but it's not a problem for me that i don't know right now because i know exactly in what way i don't know right now and exactly what's causing me to say Okay, there's, you know, it, this doesn't really fit my worldview, but I'm not going to drop it. I'm going to let it meld with my worldview over time and with more merging pieces of evidence. Right. What role does privilege play in allowing you to think on these long thought chains like this and to, to have the time to do your Google alerts and to, you know, build experiments and into how people are going to find their purpose? Like, what if, what if someone feels like their their story is totally unrelatable to yours, that they just have to make the basic ends meet and need to like take care of all these other people in their life and they don't have time to worry about the higher meaning of life? What do you tell people like that? Well, what I would say is, is if I'm looking for what role, like you ask about sort of anecdotal stories and how anecdotes shape my worldview. Um, if I look anecdotally at the people I've interacted with, and which people ask themselves these kinds of questions and which people don't, it's not as much a category of privilege versus non-privilege. So, you know, at Stanford Business School, are you, you know, when you're getting your graduate degree at Cambridge, those are two very privileged environments. And I would say very few people ask themselves these kinds of questions. Um, but where the communities I've interacted with where almost everyone is asking these kinds of questions is, for example, digital nomad communities. For, for whatever reason, in digital nomad communities, almost everyone is asked. And obviously, they're privileged to an extent, but it might be that it's not that these are the questions the people at the very highest level of privilege are asking or the people at the very lowest levels of privilege. It's people in certain social communities seem to have normalized this kind of interaction enough 
for them to focus on these sorts of questions um, and, and that you may require a certain level of privilege to be a member of these communities, but not... So if we talk about like the digital nomad community, right? Yeah, by the way, right now I'm in Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is pretty much like one of the world capitals of digital nomads. Like definitely for Southeast Asia it is the capital. Uh, yeah, so you, as you know, from being a member of that community, not coming from a privileged background does not preclude you from becoming a member of that community, but it does make the probability that you will seek it out much, much lower. Um, and at that point, it's like, I, I guess it, it, it just to us and our worldview doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, it, we, we want as many people as possible to have the luxury of being able to ask these questions. And we also understand the impact that poverty has on cognition and the ability to to basically think about anything, let alone these really, really difficult questions. Well, stressors in general have a huge impact on cognition. Yeah, huge negative impact. But it's not that these stressors are unique to communities in poverty. They are just, they are almost universal in communities of poverty, but they're not absent from all communities of privilege. You know, if I look at people who are working at McKinsey in New York City, I can tell you almost certainly they're not asking these questions. Yeah. Just because they don't have the time. I mean, they're dealing with tons of stressors in their life and they're, they're working on a lot of things. And they might have. I mean, I don't want to be offensive with that statement. I mean, it's just it, it, in my personal experience, because again, you say, do I ever use my personal experience? People who have chosen those certain life paths um, uh, typically don't engage with this type of content that much. Right. So you guys are familiar with like the concept of the new rich. Have you read like the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss? Yeah. So it was really interesting. I was walking home the other night and a buddy of mine that I knew from Thailand a couple years back, uh, was talking to me about his new, you know, website building project he's doing. And then he's like, yeah, I started being digital nomad because of, you know, Tim Ferriss's concept of the new rich. And all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, I get it totally. And then like, we move on. Like, that's crazy that that kind of conversation just happened in 30 seconds. Whereas like, I feel like in lots of other communities it'd be like, what is the new rich? And why, why is that what richness is? And it's cool that we had uh, come to the same conclusions about, about like, richness isn't just about the money you have or the stature you have it's about having an intrinsic wealth where you feel like you can express yourself and feel fulfilled and have a liberty of your time and uh, and time is a valued resource um yeah i mean i think that that that's all very interesting um I, to I optimize for to i mean one thing that i find very interesting that you mentioned is this concept of privilege it's become really big these days um, and it really brings up for me, like, like a core question that I would love to, to, to specifically why is, is, is privilege a negative thing and privilege is a negative thing because it impacts equality. But, but, but then what you need is what does an optimized world look like? Like, what are you actually trying to optimize for in society? Right now we have a society where normally from most backgrounds that you come from, you can enter almost any background. Uh, you can become rich from being incredibly poor. But the probability of it happening is way, way, way lower. 
And so is our, are we okay with that state of things? Or is it where we want to create a state of things where the probability of uh, an extreme, a person in extreme poverty to grow up rich is exactly the same as the probability of a wealthy person to, to be rich when they're an adult? Um, and then when I think about, well, how do you adjust society to make those probabilities exactly the same? Um, I don't know. I like... I don't think you could do that without extreme levels of violence that would somewhat defeat the purpose. Right. No, I was, I was just thinking about um, equity in education as one of the one of the specific examples because I do think education is a basic requirement to being able to think outside the box in the way that you guys do. So Agreed. if people don't have access to that kind of opportunity or teachers that will like, instill that kind of thought in them or come from a culture where that kind of thought is not championed in any way, how do you expect those people to relate to your story of how you came into purpose? I feel I, I'm just wondering what is that connection point when when a privileged person can can connect with an underprivileged person in this certain topic of purpose? I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I'll let someone speak in just a second, but what I wanted to say here was I think it's important to remember that this problem, like the problem we have in the U.S. of people not being willing to change their their beliefs on things and really making truth something of, of a team sport, um, I think starts in our education system and that's a privileged education system. And it starts in our education system because as soon as you try to get people to challenge any sort of controversial topic, you are the bad guy to a lot of interest groups and they will shut that down. And it's just not worth teachers talking about those things. So, I mean, I don't think it's a... You know, obviously for social mobility education is super important, but um, for the specific things that we care about, we don't think that the education system in the U.S. is super useful in achieving them. But here's what makes me so hopeful and excited, right, is, is that when you look at where people are actually learning and, and, and learning the things, not that, you know, the math and stuff that you have to learn to technically graduate and go through the governmental bureaucracy, it, it's 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 YouTube, it's podcasts like yours. Your friend didn't become, uh, you know, basically the new rich and someone who could live as a digital nomad because he went to a certain college or high school or elementary school that was privileged. He did it because to a great extent, he read a book that anyone can get pirated online for free quite easily. I read the four hour work week and it, it was from a library. I didn't pay for it. I did not read it by the way. Um, but <laughs> I mean, the, the, what makes me really hopeful is that both privileged and extremely underprivileged people do have access to YouTube and the internet, Wikipedia, all these different websites. Well, not all of them in not all areas of the world. I mean, if you're talking about extreme poverty in certain countries, you don't have access. But, yeah, to I understand what you're saying about how the internet creates a certain baseline equity that um, is game-changing. It's never really existed in culture before. It is, and there's a lot. There's a lot that can be done to to give people who just have, you know, a, a very basic smartphone phone resources. And yeah, Malcolm, you're saying a lot of people don't have access. But when I was studying technology policy at Cambridge, we looked at a lot of the technology that people have access to in what we consider to be hugely underprivileged countries. And while they may have nothing, they may not have running water. They have. Internet on their phones. Yeah, um, and, and that's huge, I, and that's a huge well. conduit. Um, so I, I'm hopeful. I'm excited. But there's really so much that can happen here. Interesting here is how you prompt communities with different internal cultures to be interested in using these technologies for self-betterment. And I think in developing countries, 
it happens very naturally. Yeah. But I think among populations within developed countries that see themselves as underprivileged, there is, you know, you, you, you there's need- not sufficient discomfort to drive people to do something moderately uncomfortable to to get out of it. So there's there's the issue of being at a local maximum. This idea that you know you're on a peak of a mountain and there's a much higher mountain that you could get to, but you have to climb down your mountain first. And because we're very comfortable in developed societies, it's not sufficient impetus for us to basically get out of the warm, comfy bed and, and move to an even and, comfier and bed. Climbing down that part of the mountain, going down that, that hill first in terms of discomfort, it's a large part of giving up part of how you identify. Um, and, and that is, an incredibly, in a society where we value our identity so much and view them as such fixed, important parts of who we are, when you say, yeah, you can go down this hill and then be up there at the top of the other hill, but it's going to take a lot of work and you're going to have to give up part of your self-identity, the answer is almost always no. Um, and, and can you create a bridge between those two hills that doesn't require you going down a part of the hill, but also doesn't require you giving up part of your identity? I, I don't... We're I, trying to. We were trying to. I, I don't know if it can be done. I want to kind of get at that. Are there any organizations that you're looking to as peer organizations or that you're drawing inspiration from right now? In any way that they do things, maybe even their business model, something specific. Well, okay, yes, there is one organization that inspired us to an extent, which was this sort of less wrong community and the rationalist community. I don't know if you're familiar with them. The less wrong or rationalist community is, is, I think there's big subsets of it around New York City and Silicon Valley. It's comprised of people who very much have like our scientific view, like let's look at studies, let's look at the science on steroids. Plus they also work in a lot of um, awareness about logical fallacies. Um, so you'll hear them when they make, you know, when they discuss things a lot, oh, well, that's confirmation bias, that's selection bias, and they, they like referring to them by name a lot, but, and, that, and that's good, so the, the, the whole idea is that they're trying to get beyond the, the human fallibility of, of our decision-making process and, and actually find the truth using a combination of science and awareness of our personal flaws. And probably where they differ most from us is our acceptance of any standards of evidence is a correct standard of evidence as long as you show your work, you know, any belief system. And, you know, we have a great admiration and, and really like working closely with, you know, evangelical Christian communities, um, you know, other very religious communities, Mormon communities. Um, right, so I guess a, a difference is that they do have certain accepted standards of evidence, whereas we, we don't. Yeah, and I think that where we have for those communities, because you know, I can ask uh, not everyone in the evangelical Christian community, but some people have. Why do you believe this? Why do you believe this? Why do you believe this? And they can show their work all the way down. What do you mean by that? Like that is typically one of the communities that's highlighted the most about like not using rationality. So why are you open to them as being a legitimate source of evidence? Because they're not, so they're, they are using the best sources of evidence that they have, be it a mixture of history and dogma. It was not the best sources of evidence. They're just using a different sort of construct. So there's, there's different people within this community. You know, some people just believe whatever they're told by their pastor, but there's a big intellectual subgroup within these communities where, you know, they say, okay, what do I believe is true? Okay, I believe this book is true. I believe this book is true for these reasons. Or we all understand this to be canon and using these sources here are the conclusions to which we can come. Yeah, and so, okay, it says this here. 
Well, what does that probably mean within the context of modern society? And here's, okay, you know, let's cross-check this reference against this miracle performed by the same, yeah. et cetera. And what I really love about these communities and, and the communities that I would say that are probably most antithetical to our viewpoint is they don't take bits of their religious traditions and just throw them out because they're inconvenient to have within a modern society. They don't say, um, well, I'm just going to decide that the Bible doesn't actually say that these people are going to hell because that would be very offensive in modern society. Um, and uh, I think that it's okay to throw out parts of them, but you've got to have some heuristic for why you're throwing out those specific parts other than it doesn't really fit with me in modern society. Um, and so that's where we differ so much from the rationalist community is our framework is meant just as much for people within an evangelical community um, as it's meant for people with from a rationalist community. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's very inclusive in that sense. Um, in- inclusivity seems like another standard that, that is almost universally good. Do you, do you have a, a thought on that? It, no. No, that's, that's, I mean, nothing's universal. Everything is subjective. Right. Do you feel like exclusivity and keeping certain knowledge, like, away from other people, is there a benefit to that? I mean, for our personal value systems, no, but it depends on what you're optimizing for. Yeah. Um, You know, for example, if you're optimizing for maximum happiness, uh, there's a lot of stuff people shouldn't know. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff people should know. Um, If you're maximizing for, like, there's a lot of things you can maximize for or choose to maximize for in life. You know, the the maximum likelihood of survival of the human species. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to share information on how to build nuclear weapons freely if that's what I'm maximizing for. Even within our belief system, I believe that we wouldn't want to share that freely. Probably not optimal. No, no, because... (laughs) People aren't going to be thinking a whole lot about the big questions in life if they're in a nuclear... Well, I mean, I would look at information that can cause too much damage, so much damage that it prevents people from asking other questions. Um, It's probably best that that information is sequestered, but I'm just thinking about this now. That's not an idea that I had been prompted about before, so my views on it may change. (laughs) That's the first time you've been prompted to think like that? That's cool. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for that. Why... So kind of along that same vein, a little bit, I find it interesting that you include a chapter in your book about caring what other people think about you. Why do you think that that's important? Because the people around us play instrumental tools in our lives, whether we like it or not. And if you want to get what you need or or if you want to impose your values on other people, you're going to have to. There is almost no objective function. So objective function is the word we use when we're talking about like the collection of things you're trying to optimize with your life. So for you, it might be like an expanded consciousness or something like that. Um, For another person, it might be trying to make as many people happy as possible, like maximizing positive emotions in the population. For another person, it might be maximizing their own happiness. Um, there is no objective function uh, that I can think of where you're not going to have a much easier time achieving that objective function if the people in your life and in the world around you uh, want you to succeed well, okay. and like you as a person. But an exception is like attaining enlightenment. It's probably best to, you know seclude yourself and and transcend you know but like no for most things you need other people right so i mean there's a few objective functions but they're very rare objective functions where you're just like i don't care what other people think about me at all i don't need money i don't need a place to live or i don't don't want to have an 
impact on anyone else. Yeah, I don't want to have an impact on anyone else. I don't want uh, to search other people. That thought about caring what other people think you is oftentimes what imprisons people from truly following their authentic sense of purpose. Ah, yes, but there's a big difference between caring what other people think of you and instrumentally utilizing their perception of you to get what you want. So I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to sound um, proud of myself. I don't care what other people think of me, except for when it has to do with my objective function. So I don't care if, if someone hates me, but I do care if that somehow prevents me from enabling them to critically think about their And lives. I actually want to take a step back from that, because you know, I know a lot of people, we all know a lot of people who, who care what other people think of well, them a great deal. Should but... also, I, I, should, I want to put in a caveat before you continue, uh, in that we are literally like conditioned, like our minds, we feel shame. We feel many, many automatic emotions based on how people perceive us because we've evolved to do so or else we'll get kicked out by the tribe and die. But hold on, I want to take a step back here. So um, I actually think that the fundamental premise of the question is wrong. I know a lot of people who, who care what other people think of them in air quotes. Okay. When I actually examine the way these people are mentally reacting to the world, they don't actually care what other people think of them. Oh, they, they care, care what they think about what other people. Yes, they care how they perceive Others. other people thinking about them. Yeah. So these people go and boast about you know what big deals they are etc cetera, etc cetera, where they you know something that they've done um but what matters to them is it necessarily the mental thing that's going in, in the other person's mind when they're reacting to this story what matters to them is how they're able to perceive this other person you know this other person thinks that i'm great and i've done these amazing things that they can't imagine doing and it is this sort of uh, uh, mental loop that's going on in their mind that they're trying to optimize for. And humorously, when you look at these people who care so much what other people think of them, they're often not very effective at uh, interacting with other people in society in a way that sort of moves them up social hierarchies or gets them into position of power. But interestingly, I mean, if you, if you are optimizing for that, it might even be better to just be delusional than it would be to try to get other people. Well, I mean, yeah, if you're trying to maximize for that, just be a narcissist because then you feel that you're the greatest always anyway. I mean, unless you're the type of narcissist, which is actually because they have two types of narcissists and there's an interesting study about this. But anyway. So, um, I'm interested why you guys have, why you guys chose a very traditional educational path. Like you, you uh, spent significant amount of time and probably financial resources to be educated at these like marquee institutions. Um, oh, right, actually, so we had talk about your Cambridge conversation. Big ass debate about this. It was probably one of the biggest disagreements we've ever had in our relationship. Yeah, um, which was uh, I argued, no, you don't have to go to a big brand school to be respected and get what you want. Um, and Malcolm said, based on the kind of power and success we wish to build in order to serve our objective functions, yes, we do. And I said, no, people will judge me for who I am on the inside. They'll understand my merit. I'll demonstrate it to them. I'll become successful on my own. And then I just decided to ultimately Google the profiles of any woman who was in a position that I wanted to be in within the next five years. Lo and behold, my sampling revealed that all of them had not only a master's degree, but one from a well-respected university. And you broke down crying when that happened as well. I was real but pissed. what I do is I love the way that you handled that. So we had a debate about something. She goes, okay, let's look. What kind of evidence would I trust? Okay, I'm going to take a sampling of people who are in positions that I want to be in. 
oh, that evidence doesn't conform with my belief system. And I really wanted to prove to him, I really wanted to show him here, you know, I, I sampled 200 LinkedIn profiles or, you know, 200 professional profiles of women in general. And, you know, here, like this percentage didn't have any sort of, well, okay, there were plenty of women who were famous and successful and who did have a you know, good platform to share a message, which is what we eventually want. But how did they get there? Well, they slept with someone or they were a sex symbol and I'm not going to make it that way. So that was really just. And by slept with someone, she means getting married. That's yeah, little... they married a prince um, or someone famous. So so to take this, this, this back a bit, one, I admire her so much for doing that. For us having a disagreement about something, her searching, and the type of contradictory evidence that you search for could be entirely different than that. You could think that the evidence she searched for was garbage evidence, it could but it was evidence that was important to her based on sort of her mental framework. She used that evidence to then change herself, and then that's why she went to Cambridge. Yeah. And, and talk about the difference in sort of the emails you sent out, the response oh, rates, everything God, like that, because know, we kept data on this. Yeah, Tanner, it's the worst. I mean, like, I still cringe about it because I... I really didn't want this to be true, um, but at least for like, so we, we, we've taken a path where we've decided, okay, we need to make as much money as possible and get as high profile positions in life as possible because we do want a platform for this message. We think it's really important. Um, and, and so, you know, we needed to raise money from investors to what we've done is we've raised money from investors to acquire a business, which we're now running. Right. So we're asking people for um, at first hundreds of thousands and then literally millions of dollars. And the difference that I experienced when sending out fundraising emails before I had a Cambridge master's degree and after was genuinely alarming. Like all I had to use was, was it was like eight X higher. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I should have actually kept track of it more systematically the change in response rates, but for at least what we wanted to do, which was convince, you know, wealthy people to give us money and, and believe in us to, to make a return on their investment and run a business competently. Yeah, uh, it made a huge difference. But you can talk about like sort of how you thought about going to Cambridge. So the way we decided on Cambridge is we looked at the different programs. We looked at the cost of the different programs and the temporal requirements, the time requirements to go to them. Um, and it was a program that was the highest benefit in terms of name recognition against the the monetary and, and temporal cost of going. Yeah, so we chose maximum prestige, minimum cost and time for me to just get the stamp. Um, of a graduate degree from a school like this. Yeah, and because I, you do was, like really trust great. that you can learn a lot just from life experiences or... or no, I mean, like everything that, that I've learned that has been valuable has been, like I discussed earlier, stuff that I've learned online or from, from going up personally exploring stuff. I actually love that question. So you can learn a ton from life experiences. If yeah, you're school, going... school is not about, well, paid for school is not about learning. You may happen to learn stuff there, but it's more about it's, the stamp. It's, it's about the rubber. It's about the branding. And the branding is a useful because of what other people think. We live in a world where we're trying to navigate within a social society, and that comes back to your earlier question of why do we care what other people think of us? Well, it matters when we're raising money. It, it, it matters when we're um, you know, trying to uh, set up a new institution somewhere. It matters when we're publishing a book or something like that. You know, um, And- I wish it didn't. I wish it didn't, but there is reason why it exists. I mean, as I said on that first day when I'm like, I'm going to find her at Stanford because they've, they've um, they're uh, pre vetted candidates. Pre candidates. What these brandings allow other people to do when they interact with you is say, oh, 
this person was pre-vetted by some institutional vetting process that I trust, I really don't need to think that much about whether or not they're competent or whether or not I should trust what they think. And not all humans do that, but enough humans in positions of power do that it moves the needle. The human brain is optimized to conserve energy, both in thought and physical action. So people are always going to try to take the lowest effort option, and it's a true struggle. When they're trying to judge. Yeah, and I mean, we look for symbols not just in this, but like when somebody interacts with you, they look at the way you dress, they look at the, you know, a, a lifestyle that you've chosen to live, and they say, okay, this is either a source of information that's valuable to me in my life, or it's not. And they're, they're largely judging off of that first few second appearance. Well, because, because we literally don't have the mental processing power, time, effort, or of course desire to get to know everyone in their, in their intricate complexity whenever we meet someone. Right. Yeah, I would love to talk about that topic. Um, that seems to be a big one right now. Um, relationships are definitely um, at a very surface level. Um, Tinder is a new way of dating. What are your ideas and thoughts about the near future of um, having quality, depthful relationships where there's actual, like, true care and trust and empathy towards one another? So, so this is fun. We're actually, the next book we're writing is The Pragmatist Guide to Relationships, and, and we, we talk a lot about this. What, what I would say is that it's, it's totally possible to, to get people to have the right immediate perception of you if you then we talk about this in the pragmatist guide to life um you you should create basically a caricature of yourself um ideally that's a character people wish existed in the world because then they'll be very you know attracted to you and they'll remember you easily um and you'll get your message across well they won't necessarily be attracted to you but they'll you'll hold more mental space for them yeah like, i mean that was one of trump's strengths when he was running in the election it, it was some such a simple caricature People could interact with it really, really easily. Uh, Sarah Palin did this really well as well. Yeah. Such a simple caricature that I'm like, I get that. I don't need to think much to fit that in my brain. And so in the world of dating, what people have to keep in mind is that they're, they have to simplify and distill themselves in the proper way to get the right kind of candidates. And we live in a world in which people need to really keep that in mind and the way that they're positioning themselves. Um, but I do know... We're so excited about the potential that relationships have. And I say this as someone who is really excited to live her entire life alone. Now I realize, um, I mean, as someone who not only is in, who's not only married and happily married, but also working full time 24 seven with a partner, um, that there's a lot that a lot of value that people can get out of relationships that are, they're not gleaning right now. And we're really excited to study this more and try to build a better model that perhaps we can effectively share. Um, yeah, I would, uh, uh, sort of add to that within the context of your original question is there's this belief that people should, should know us and understand us. And you can know like a long-term partner, like if you spend years with this person, you'll get to know them. But it is such a fantasy that people can really get to know you within a short period of time. Even if somebody could read your thoughts for, you know, the last 24 hours, how much would they really know you? Like they probably, or the last six hours, let's say, probably not that great. They wouldn't know what people really mean when they say they want other people to know them is they mean they want other people to think of them what they think of themselves. Um, their ideal self. Their ideal self. And 
And that's very different than knowing someone. That's just being aware of what they think their ideal self is, which is typically why I start relationships with that question, so I can get a better understanding of, of what the other person is optimizing for, so I can determine of whether or not an interaction with me is going to help them optimize for that thing. But another big thing that, that we're huge proponents of, and, and this is, I mean, everyone says communication is really important in relationships, but it is, and not just like, I feel this way, but more, why are we actually bothering to be in a relationship? So Malcolm and I are big proponents and have ourselves of, of relationship contracts, this concept that both people in a relationship need to have disclosed and agreed upon what they're what they're going for, what they're comfortable doing. All what they're about. relationships are built on contracts. Even a friendship is an implied contract. If you're my friend, you don't then date the girl who I just broke up with. Like that's a, a portion of the implied contract. All boyfriend girlfriends are implied contracts. But the problem is that they're implied contracts that are not matching. So the girlfriend is expecting he's dating me because he's going to marry me well, someday. Well, hold on. That is sometimes a problem, Simone. Yeah. So, the, so sometimes a, a problem with, with relationships, there are frequent problem with relationships, is the implied contract that both parties working under are not the same applied contract, either due to cultural reasons or reasons of where they grew up. You know, this person grew up believing that this is what a boyfriend is, and this person grew up believing this is what a boyfriend is, and because they haven't spelled out the contractual terms of their relationship, um, that then there is potential for conflict there. Um, and so it is very useful to understand and spell out what are the contractual terms of your own relationship? And it is especially important because the relationship contracts that we're laboring under in society were mostly formed in the 18th and 19th century, you know, before birth control, before women were like allowed to have jobs, before many of the modern things in society today. And these relationship contracts aren't really working in modern society where women are gaining more equality and where birth control exists. Well, so sex isn't as important. Where, where some people can sleep around yeah. a lot. And there's no real. So er earlier you talked about how like you have your objective function and your purpose is, is related to that, um, fulfilling that objective function. Do you find that the, the relationship has to match on that, that you both share the same objective function in order for you to be working 24 seven together? We had talked about it early in our relationship. We had two different objective functions. We we knew it. We talked about it all the time. Yeah. Simone had this idea for an objective function. She shared it with me one day, and I was like, shit, that's better. Um, that's better than what I believe. I don't think it's correct, but it's better than what I believed before. Think about it this way, though. You could have one person whose objective function is to is to be happy, and another person's objective function is to um, you know make other people happy, right? I mean, yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, or a specific other person instead of aggregate society, because then that's not a good match. Yeah. But uh, all the time, you know, you'll have a trophy wife who is marrying somebody. I mean, one thing to really focus if she's marrying someone because they want comfort and money and personal happiness. And then you have the guy who um, is marrying her as a status symbol because his objective function is to maximize his status within society um, or his family's status within society. And this is a great so, contract while she's sexy. Right. And so this contract works very, out very well for them as long as, 
you know, she's attractive, but if she was aware of his objective function, she would know that he would divorce her as soon as she was no longer useful to him in that capacity, unless she somehow built up some other forcing function that kept them together. Like, for example, um, children. children or he's running for synod and he doesn't want to look bad or something like that, right? So um, it's important to be aware of why your partner is married to you as well because that affects when they end the relationship. Yeah, certainly. So in your guys' marriage, maybe you can take it how you want, but how does marriage help guide your, your collective purpose? Well, I mean, look, we run all these companies together, we ran our fund together. So essentially, what, Malcolm, you describe it as a force multiplier. Um, a force multiplier, yes. Every ounce of pressure I put towards something, she multiplies into four ounces of pressure. Um, and, and, and so what we do is we use each other to to achieve this purpose, mostly because, at least in our case, we have almost perfectly overlapping strengths and weaknesses. So we shore up each other's weak parts and then strengthen uh, ourselves sort of synergistically. I mean, so it's a good team. She's been such a great CEO of these companies, um, the, the travelmax.com, uh, because I'm we're sure working up. together yeah. and we're shoring up each other's weaknesses. And that through working together on growing these companies and making this transaction happen, it n I never would have been able to accomplish it alone, never in a million years. And because we're working together, you know, we're going to be able to to grow this. So project. what do you guys have to say when someone wants to fulfill their objective function of being able to travel the world and they want to get to know you really well and you share a lot of who you are and they share a lot of who they are. And then they're like, hey, uh, you own a travel company. Can you get me a free vacation for my family and I like how when is a relationship being like used versus when is like being utilized for each productive function of, you know. Oh, I mean, so we, we actually, uh, so when it comes to relationships and friends and stuff, we're, we're totally okay with like transactional relationships. We call them utility friends. Um, you know, that is to say you have utility friends and these are the people from whom you get free travel um, or who have access to information, people, resources that you want. Um, it could be like, you know, yeah. a, a, an attractive man and he's a utility friend because he has sex and I want sex or something, you know. Um, and then there are friends that are character reinforcing friends. You know, we, we like them and we hang out with them because they help us complete an element of our ideal self. You know, like I have to have my token gay friend or something, you know, like to fill out that, that story. Um, and then there are just convenience friends where, you know, we have this human instinct to want to be around people. Sometimes. These are like your coworkers or like the people in your dorm room floor in college or yeah, something. They're like the that. warm bodies that fill your life because you don't want to be alone. Um, and so, you know, when we, we, we actually love being, and we want to be utility friends to people. Um, because that means that, that we offer something of value to us. It's a good sign. So, you know, if someone like, you know, sidles up to us and tries to get free travel, I mean, we're limited on, on what we can do in terms of free travel because it's expensive, but it, you know, we don't mind that at all. Well, I mean, the best of a utility friend is the utility you're offering doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. Um, uh, where, you know, like being friends with this person, you know, you're friends with them because, they get you into this social organization or some, or, or this clique because you're friends with them and so you gain access to that information and it's just the friendship itself is providing that utility to you. Um, but a utility, we, we do have a, a, a final category of friendship, which we uh, say sort of, um, I, I forget the word for it, but like identity melded friends. Um, and this is like a best friend or someone you're married to or something like that. Um, and not all married couples fall into this category. Some married couples are married because of a mutual exchange of utility, 
But other married couples begin to see themselves as the same entity. Suborganism. Um, but I don't really know. That's the best way to describe it. But like yeah, the same yeah. entity. Yeah, a fusion, a like fusion. in Steven Universe. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, and that's a different type of friendship and relationship you can have with someone. But uh, I don't know. It's not that common. So in, in society right now. We don't, we don't mind that. Cool. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I should probably head to bed soon. I would love to connect with you guys again. Uh, not necessarily just to publish a podcast, but I really like talking to you guys. I don't know what it would take for me to be a, a utility friend. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can build your platform. Uh, continue building your platform. Have us on again, and we will talk to you socially as well. Um, but here, <laughs> there are so many questions we still want to ask. Before we, too, so we have to keep this going. But no, before we sign off, gotta make a few plugs. The Pragmatist Guide to Life on Amazon, bestseller, right? Well, Amazon bestseller, whatever that means. And uh, really encourage people to go out and get it. It's ninety nine cents. It's the lowest price we were able to give it. You can make it free, but only for like short periods. And then um, uh, the Pragmatist Foundation, all, all the money that comes from the book goes to the foundation. And the foundation we're going to use to set up like after school programs, like what we were talking about and everything like that. And also travelmax.com. Please reach out to us, uh, CEO at travelmax.com if you ever want to book travel. Uh, what we focus on is saving people money on sort of complex international trips. Um, but we also do a lot of domestic trips in any corporation that uses us. I mean, I know from the numbers that aggregately we save people money. Yeah, because for the longest time we thought this accounting report meant we were losing money. And technically, when you look at list prices, we are. But yeah, anyway, so we are. We are actually like um, really good at that. And to recommend the way to, to do the best deal is to actually email you, the CEO, rather than just figure it out yourself on the website? Yeah, because when, when our employees, you know, get like... An email from the CEO. Yeah, like, it's like, hey, deal. you know, here's Tanner. You better freaking treat him well or like, you know, implying that we're going to... Yeah, uh, <laughs> but, but the, no, the, um, the, the travel industry is like way weirder than people think. So I, I think just a core thing to sort of understand because people are like, well, what do you mean? You're cheaper than what's online? And it's like, well, look, if I am a, an airline company, right? I'm American Airlines. And I know I'm selling tickets at X price. I can fill 80% of seats. And if I sold it at 20% less, I could fill 100% of seats. Well, I mean, it may not economically make sense for me to sell it for 20% less, but I still want to sell those extra 20% seats. Well, the channels to do that through are not Expedia, that, because you know, if I market down 20%, that's the new price. The channels to do it through are these in-person booking websites. Um, it's like because us. of opaque pricing. So because yeah. we don't publish the pricing, we can get prices that no one else is allowed to show online, including, you know, Kayak, Expedia, et cetera. I mean, this is true for a lot of travel agencies, but we're the best, so reach out. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'd so, so appreciate your time and your incredible questions. We have so many questions we want to ask you, so I'd love to chat again. Um, but thank you for your time, and, and always, always feel free to reach out to us. You guys really require the, the maximum intellectual capacities, and I love that. I haven't been challenged like this in a little while. Um, it's really refreshing. Thank you for the intellectual stimulation. Thank you for the questions we haven't even considered yet. Uh, this has been really fun. Thank you again. Perhaps the most helpful, inspiring, and uplifting thing that you can do is leave your feedback. I would love to hear from you how People of Purpose is impacting your life. It's so energizing to know that someone out there in the world of the internet is listening to this thing we're creating. It's hard to know how the project is doing when there's not an audience in front of you to give immediate feedback. The weekly personal message or the occasional review 
is the most inspiring part of producing and publishing this show. It's oftentimes the most inspiring part of my week, but we need more. Let me know what's resonating and what could use some improvement. If you have new ideas or a question you'd like to ask me, please don't hesitate. This is one instance in which you can exercise your personal power to shape the show. Consider yourself our freelance consultant. And don't forget, if you want to sign up for the POP newsletter or become a volunteer, please reach out. Email us at peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com or leave a direct message through our Facebook or Instagram pages. Thank you for your support and listenership, and here's to becoming 